There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the globe, women have been outperforming men in school for a century. We're biologically kind of amazing. Obviously, we can have children, but we also live longer. And all the women I know are incredibly hardworking and caring. A lot of us have all of the qualities of the feminine and many of the qualities of the masculine. I think we tend to be more balanced. So I think if we can stop restricting ourselves and stop policing each other, I think as women get on side with each other, the next iteration of society will look different. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a podcast for you to relax, drift off, and allow your mind to wander. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and researcher on a mission to share information that will help you live happier, healthier, and with more love, optimism, and wisdom. This podcast features interviews with well-known guests and world-leading experts about what it truly means to be human and what we can do to become the very best versions of ourselves. On today's Unwind, I'm speaking with Elise Lunan, who is someone I have admired for years and was actually a huge inspiration behind this podcast three years ago. I first discovered Elise when she was hosting the Goop podcast and I absolutely adored her interviewing style, her delicate questions and the way that she mesmerized me by the sheer quantity of books she'd read and the nature of the conversations she held. She has been a great teacher of mine and so when I discovered she'd written her very own book, I couldn't have been happier to invite her on this podcast because she is truly an incredible woman. Elise is now the host of her very own podcast, Pulling the Thread. She has co-written 12 books, five of which were New York Times bestsellers. She has now written a book that has had me spellbound for days. The book is called On Our Best Behavior, The Price Women Pay to Be Good. And the book uncovers and unravels the seven deadly sins that have seeped into our lives, whether we are conscious of it or not. This book would never have been able to see the light of day a few decades ago, because Elise investigates oppressive societal norms so many of us accept and others enforce in a way that exposes how toxic and hurtful they are for humanity, especially women. Elise dives into the cultural soup we are all swimming in, the soup that takes over our free will so much of the time and helps us to reimagine what life could be like if we found our way back to our true wisdom. I shuddered, I cried, I sheepishly recognized my own behavior, especially the behavior I am ashamed of, and yet I felt a sense of freedom after reading this brilliant book. I would love for you to read a passage of the book that deeply resonates. So when I started working on this book and thinking about the seven deadly sins as this corralling container, that insight was very fast, even though I was shocked to make it because I grew up in a 
not a religious household at all. My dad is Jewish. My mom is a recovering Catholic who did her best to keep me away from any sort of religious programming. And I was actually thinking about this concept of envy and wondering if that's the reason that there's so much women on women hate in our culture. Is it really envy? That's where I started. And then I wanted to understand where envy came from. And I was like, is this what I'm going to write a book about? And, you know, I love words and I'm a word dork. So I was like, where did, what's the etymology of envy? Where did it come from? And I was like, oh, right. It's one of those sins. Like, what were those? And I went through the list and it was heart stopping, honestly, because I think that we're so quick to dismiss elements like that, right? Unless we grew up in a, in a very Catholic, primarily a Catholic household as just sort of a funny meme for a movie. And as I went through the list, I was like, oh my God, these are all things that women in particular, we control ourselves according to these edicts. So they are just to remind people, sloth, envy, pride, gluttony, greed, lust, anger. And so in the introduction, when I delineate these sins and the way that they show up in my life and the way that I've observed them in culture, I write, this list gives me chills. I hate it. I see it and feel viscerally how tired I am of controlling my own behavior, of bending myself to abide by cultural expectations. I recognize that the ways in which I want to be seen do not align with who I know myself to be. There is a deeper, more real me. I keep her largely hidden, mediate her through these filters, make sure she remains in check. I always believed it was dangerous to let her out. But now I've come to understand that it's more dangerous to keep her bound. If I don't unshackle her from these oppressive ideas of goodness, that part of her will slowly asphyxiate, and I will never know what it will feel like to live fully as myself, not diminished, not bound, not scared. I couldn't agree more with you. I had never even spent a second moment to consider the seven deadly sins. And yet it's something that we all know, as you said, we've seen it in movies. And I was full of chills reading mm -hmm. this book about how much control these sins have had over us. So to give more context into this, what are the consequences of these sins, do you think, on the cultural landscape? You know, the, the thesis of the book is that women were culturally programmed for goodness. It's part of the identity that's expected and therefore baked into all of us. And I make the counter argument, not extensively in the book, but I think most people will recognize it, that men are trained for power, which is also damaging. I think we're all victims of this patriarchal society. And in the insidious way that women are equated with this identity of what it is to be a good woman, a good woman, a good friend, a good mother. There's nothing really more threatening to that core identity than to be perceived as bad or deviant. And I trace the ways, I try to do it quite efficiently so that it's not a dense academic book about how this came to be. But this is culture, which we then have synonymized or equated with nature so that you, Poppy, as a woman, you should be all of these things. This is who you are. And that inherently negates actually who you are because so much of the programming, the story about what we tell 
about who we're supposed to be informs how we show up in the world. And so when we think about these sins, which is the structure of the book, just also for context, what's fascinating about them is I was like, oh, I'm not that familiar with the Bible, but they're in the Bible. They're not in the Bible. They came out of the Egyptian desert at the same time that the New Testament was canonized. So in the fourth century, you know, centuries after Jesus lived and died, right? And they came out of the desert and then they entered Catholicism in the sixth century and later. So they're not actually (laughs) religious. They're not actually gospel even, but they are, that's how culture works. These things just sort of are inserted and then they become insidious. And then we assume that they're inevitable. But these sins, these they were originally thoughts, and there were eight, including sadness, which is the one that was dropped. And I think that that has lodged in the minds of men. I think that the symptom of the suppression of sadness in the lives of men is toxic masculinity. I think when you are separated from your feelings and not allowed to express them, it comes out in really perverse, damaging ways that hurt us all. For women gluttony, greed. We're so conscious. We're so self-restricting around these ideas and so moral about it, right? So we've all said, oh, you know, I was so bad last night. I need to be good today. Not only did I have one piece of pizza, but I had two pieces of pizza. And now I need to pay penance in my diet and at the gym. Like this is the air we breathe and we're not conscious of it. And When you go through all of these sins, I just don't hear men policing themselves and then more dangerously policing each other. Because the thing about these sins is that we enforce them in our own lives and then we enforce them with each other, not only by upholding these norms, but by, I think, even more insidiously being like, how dare she? How dare she allow herself any freedom in the expression of her sexuality? in her ambition at work. I would never allow myself to do that. How dare she? I don't like her. And this is all subconscious. We are not even aware that that is what we're doing. And it just sort of comes out as this, like, I don't like her. I don't like her. She's What I think is happening is she's pushing on a dream that we have for ourselves, but we don't even allow ourselves to let that dream come up. You're right. Why can't we just say, oh, She's perfect and it makes me feel inadequate. But rather we say, oh, she's the fucking worst. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been so guilty of saying something like this. And let's touch into, and obviously it's a term, schadenfreude. I'd love to kind of move into that. Schadenfreude, yeah. It's a German word and it means joy plus harm. So it's that feeling when we're like, oh, she got what she deserved. It's that sort of visceral thrill when you see someone taken down a notch. I wouldn't say it's harmless because it's not that we're like, oh, I have schadenfreude. That person got ran over by a bus, right? It's more relevant when we see someone publicly humiliated or demoted or um, embarrassed in some way, put down a notch or two. It's rampant in our culture. And a lot of times it's like funny or not that big of a deal. But it is really good information for us. Mm. When you Mm. see someone and you have this feeling of like, oh, yay, like she got what she deserved. And again, separating out sort of like politics or people who are really bad actors where you're like, thank God that this person is 
removed from power, et cetera. That's different. This is your coworker. This is a female singer, whatever it may be. But actually noticing in yourself, your reaction, like where we put our attention has a lot of information. And there are a lot of people that you're like, I don't care. That has no relevance to me. But when it does, when you are actually invested in what's happening to someone, there's something in that that is tapping you on the shoulder and saying, pay attention, pay attention to what is what is at work in yourself right now. I mean, I think a great example of this, especially with an American and a Brit chatting, would be Harry and Meghan and just how much Meghan has created so many headlines. And I do wonder why we place so much attention on this woman who is walking the footsteps of many other women. Many other husbands have gone to another country because it felt better for the family or whatever. But we, for some reason, it seems incredibly jarring. Tell me why. I wanted to write about her, and it's obviously there's a complex stew, but I'm not British, and I know that it's particularly inflamed in the UK. What is it? Is it that she married the prince? Is it that she got the fairy tale and then didn't actually want the fairy tale ending, and somehow it reflects, like, how dare she reject the dream that I have? What is it? Tell me. Yeah. I When I read your book, it was incredibly thought-provoking into this. And I think, and using your material, I think that she exhibited so many sins, right? She Mm -hmm. kind of had a pride, which as you identify is a sin. So I think she exhibited confidence that so many women repress and don't Mm -hmm. show their confidence. In some ways she's sexy, right? So she exhibits some lust, which again, as we read about in your book, it's another thing we kind of shame ourselves on. So in many ways, she's kind of a walking, talking example (laughs) of all of these sins that I think we have, especially as British women, have suppressed within ourselves because I think British culture, and I think this is probably why I resonated with your book so much, I think perhaps it's even more intense, the level of conditioning we have here, the the stiff upper lip, the history that we have in British culture. You know, we've admired royals. And why did we love the Queen? Because she was the most incredible person at never being angry, never talking when she didn't need to talk. She was the example of perfection, right? Mm -hmm. So in a way, Megan was the exact opposite of that. So maybe that's just on the top of my head, why perhaps there has been such a revolt against in many ways. I mean, why do we even care? Yeah. And it's interesting. And in Pride, which you suggested, which is about this I think it shows up in our bodies as a fear of being seen. And part of that, again, when we go to the cultural programming and you think about people like Megan, who did this trajectory very, very fast, but it is the typical trajectory of a famous woman in our culture where we sort of celebrate her as she emerges out of the ether into the public eye. We revere her. She's beloved. And then there's a certain point where they, this Icarus-like moment where it becomes, how dare she? You know, how dare she be seen? How dare she think that she's special? And then we all go for these women. It's like, it's time to put her back in her place. And it's a story as old as time. We see it across industries, like the actresses that endure as revered public examples tend to be 
the Meryl Streeps of the world, incredibly talented, beautiful, but sort of unusual looking, not sort of this classically pretty blonde woman. She comes out, she does an amazing piece of art, she goes away. She comes out, she does an amazing piece of art, she goes away. She is not never overtly looking for attention. And I think it's one of the reasons that people like that have endured. And then others, we just watch them on this. And that's where we we have a lot of public schadenfreude, right? When we watch these famous women get destroyed. And then we sort of celebrate them when they, or we revere them after, like an Amy Winehouse or a Billie Holiday or a Princess Diana, for that matter. So the problem with this, the extra insidious part, and what I don't think that we're conscious of, is that what we are training ourselves to see and understand, and what we are teaching our daughters and all younger generations, is it is not safe to be seen. It is not safe to be celebrated. As soon as you step into the public eye, you will be a target for attack. You will be destroyed. That is the cultural message that we are subscribing to in the way that we treat our most visible women who tend to be famous. And I don't think we're conscious of it. So you get this mix, this stew of sort of envy, how dare she, I would never do that, that fuels our participation, the participation of other women in the destruction of other women. And this isn't to say like we can't criticize or we can't have opinions, but it's very different than I think what happens in reality. And then the way that we double down to make ourselves feel okay, we look for all the reasons to justify what we've done instead of acknowledging what's really at play. And this brings me to another one of your brilliant lines. You write, typically envy comes out as cruelty masked as opinion. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure all of us can relate to a time where I'm just giving my opinion on her. And actually it's cruel. And as you beautifully invite us to consider what is the true root of this envy. And this moves me on to another thing you write, which I'd love to discuss Envy is arguably the worst of the seven sins because it admits desire. And to want something is the first expression of agency. Why do you think women struggle so much to admit desire? Because in our culture and our long-standing patriarchal culture for millennia, women have not been allowed to really have wants. This is a new thing to want anything outside of what has been predetermined and predestined for us, which is essentially being chattel, being a a bride who raises the next generation. And we don't have much practice. And I talk about it a lot in the context of all that's unspoken between mothers and daughters. And I think that we're in the process of working this through our system and it will get better. But, you know, I write about my own mother who was born in 1950, and she was coming of age during second wave feminism. And this time in the 70s when women were striking out, needing to work, actually, was but the way that it was positioned as women's liberation was that they were choosing to work and put aside their families and pursue their own ambition. But the reality is, at least in the United States, most families could not maintain a middle-class existence unless both parents were working. But it was sold as this like 
destructive family impulse for all these women to be working. That's the environment that my mom grew up on, right on the precipice of kind of having a choice. If she had really pushed, she could have done something with her world or with her life. She's an incredibly brilliant, competent person. But then choosing, she didn't have safety or security growing up, choosing to marry my father, who was a doctor. So I grew up, and my mom, to her credit, it was kind of painful at points, I will be honest, but she really told the truth about her life, always. She didn't dissemble or pretend that the identity of mother was like her crowning achievement or ambition. Mm -hmm. And so that liberated me, I think, to write a book like this, honestly, Mm -hmm. and to examine her own ambivalence about the identity that she had been pushed into and all that she had suppressed or not achieved in her life. And I think that there is a lot of unspoken ambivalence and anger that we have passed down from mothers to daughters, where we are both our mother's jailers and their joy. We have constrained and confined their lives, and also they love us. But this ambivalence is not something that we've been able to talk about or really get out of our system. So as a daughter, when you live your life in a way that's different than what your mother either chose willingly or had to choose, you are sort of impugning her decisions. And you know, one of the, my hopes for the book is that this cracks open a conversation where we can be honest. We can tell the truth about our lives and actually say, you know what I actually really wanted? What I really wanted was to be a novelist. And it didn't happen in this life because I had children, blah, blah, blah. But like, that's my dream. And I think instead, all those dreams, wants, desires were never expressed. And we can feel that, right? Like we know that it's present, even if it's unspoken. And so I think we just haven't had models, enough generational models of what it is at a young age to say, this is what I want. This is what I desire. And I'm going to do it. And it's getting better. These generations will break it. It'll finally be out of our system, but we're not as far as we think that we are. What I love about this writing is it allows us to realize that it's not the fault of the individual. And you comment on this Buddhist idea of desire is the root of struggle or vice versa. And so when you have deeply revered philosophies like Buddhism also trying to dissuade us away from desiring things, it's very difficult to then reconnect with desires. Yeah. You know, I talk about Mark Epstein, who's a psychiatrist and a a practicing Buddhist, and he writes a lot about Buddhism and psychology. And he reframed that for me. And he wrote this book called Open to Desire. And the way that we've culturally, and I don't think men have been as, again, as sensitive to this programming, but certainly women of this, you shouldn't want anything. It's unseemly to want anything. And his point was the Buddha wasn't saying, suppress all your desires and appetites. He sort of tried that. He tried extreme asceticism and almost died from, you know, not eating, essentially wasting away. He said that the Buddha was talking about attachment. Where we get twisted is when we are like, I will be this thing or this thing has to happen and we don't allow it to unfold or we don't recognize that maybe that's not the direction that our lives will take. We get so attached to a certain outcome mm. that we don't let life happen, develop. And we might end up getting something that's far greater than anything that we could dream. But the fixation is what they were talking about. This 
fixation on certainty, this desire to predict the future. But desire itself to want, it's who we are. It's how we express ourselves in the world. And we have to get in touch with it. It's vital. It is the animating force of our lives. And you mentioned Lacey Phillips as a great example as someone who helps people to kind of get in contact with desire. Would you mind sharing more on how this idea of expanders is actually helpful for even working out what you desire? It's funny because when I first submitted this chapter, my editor, Wit Frick, who's amazing, she had sort of a visceral reaction to this chapter where she was like, I can't believe that this is true. I can't. And then she was like, I don't feel any envy. And then later, as <laughs> as it worked its way into her body, she started to identify it and was like, at first, I was like, fine, we'll make it the last chapter. It's the second chapter right now. But I told her I'd make it the last chapter and I would convince her over the course of the book that this was the gateway. And it got moved up. She started to finally allow. It was so strong. The impulse is so strong. It's so shameful to feel envy that we suppress, 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 suppress. And she had to let it come up before she could start to see it, which is my hope for this book, that people start to – there's enough conversation where we destigmatize the conversation and remove the shame and we can actually start saying it. And so one of the things that I introduced, because I was like, well, there are really good examples of this. Again, younger generations, Lacey's, I don't know, probably 10 years younger than I am. I think she speaks to a lot of women, but definitely some younger women and – in LA at least, I don't know if this has crossed the pond, but she has this um, company called To Be Magnetic and she teaches people how to manifest, which might cue an eye roll in some, but her version is different. She works with a neuroscientist and her point is like, this isn't about manifesting a yacht. You know, this is about actually getting at all of our subconscious beliefs. It's very aligned with the book. It's like, what do I believe about myself and what do I hold as possible or not possible for me? And so her work is deep psychological work. You almost want to do it with a therapist. And she coined this term called expanders. And one of the first things that you do as part of this manifestation course with Lacey is identify the expanders in your life. It's where, again, where your attention is drawn. Who is doing something that you are interested in doing? It might be a fragment expander. It might be someone who, there might be some part of their life where you're like, wow, they found a really functioning relationship or they managed to buy a house in their 30s or it doesn't have to be the whole package in one person. Often it's career-related. And you take that person, so someone who's listening and is like, I really want to be Poppy. You know, everything that she's built for herself feels like a calling to me. This is the dream. They would take you and they would study you. And they would, instead of feeling envious and looking for reasons to dethrone you so they can replace you, even if that's not even what's actually at play, I think that's the psychological mechanism because of scarcity that we're raised in. But that person would take Poppy, put her on a mood board and just be like, how did she do this? And it's this really actually wonderful, if she could do this, I think I could do this too. Not to deprecate your skill or say, oh, anyone could do what Poppy does, but that's sort of the idea. Like, how do I do that? How did she start? What was her career trajectory? Where did she go to school? Would she give me an informational? It's just a different way of opening up to what's possible. 
And Lacey's point is that a lot of it starts with plumbing out all of this conditioning about what we think is possible for us or not. Some of you that have been following me for a while now may know how much time I spend on my feet. I'm obsessed with walking. It truly makes me feel happier. But last year, I started to suffer from some foot pain and I just couldn't work out what I was doing wrong. Turns out, my shoes were the problem. I never really gave a second thought to what I should be wearing on my feet until I was told I was wearing shoes with no support. This is when I started doing my research and discovered Vivo Barefoot. After my first run in my Primus lights, there was no turning back. My feet are less constricted and they offer a barefoot design that fits firmly around my feet and makes them feel so much stronger. The feeling of the ground beneath your feet also connects you to the world around you. So you really get that grounding feeling. They are almost like therapeutic shoes. They are incredibly relaxing to wear. Vivo Barefoot are offering a 100-day free trial on their footwear. And you can purchase yours today with an exclusive 15% off for our listeners when you visit www.vivobarefoot.com slash unwind. Check out the link in the show notes. To go back to, I guess, actually the beginning where you set out why the feminine started to be devalued because Mm -hmm. obviously there's historical texts that suggest that women were the goddesses once upon a time and then we lost our crowns. (laughs) How did that happen? Because one thing I truly enjoyed about your writing is you give such a historical education into the idea of the woman. Yeah. I worked the hardest on that chapter because it is, you can imagine, you can, there are volumes written about the formation of patriarchy. And so distilling it into something that's readable and simple in some ways. And of course, I've overly simplified tons of notes in the back. But looking for sort of a theory of how this happened, what you'll you'll sometimes see in nonfiction is like, oh, it used to be a matriarchy and then it became a patriarchy. And that's not what happened from what we understand. We'll never know the complete truth. We just don't have the records. People weren't writing, et cetera. But the theory is that in prehistory, we were affiliative partner style communities dependent on each other to survive. And again, a lot of male anthropologists and historians like to project back onto time as this like women were in the cave with the babies and men were out there hunting. And they continue to find evidence to this day that suggests things were far more nuanced from community to community. There are female Vikings. I write about this one gravesite in the Andes when they went back with more advanced technology and looked at these graves. I think it were 26 graves of 26 warriors. And they had assumed, of course, that they were all men. And when they went back and reevaluated the graves, 10 out of the 26 were women. In Turkey, I always butcher this name, Cattle Hayek, which is uh, a Stanford team, I think is continuing to do work there. When they look at this prehistoric city and they examined remains, what's really interesting is that for the most part, men and women are more or less the same size. They were eating the same thing. So men weren't prioritized with better food, which you see in some cultures. And there was an equal amount of soot, smoke in their lungs, suggesting that they were spending an equal amount of time inside 
in the kitchen over the fire. And so one of the the ideas is that historically, and again, all over the globe, things were happening at different timescales in different ways, was that we were affiliative. We were practicing alloparenting, so children were raised more communally, typically by older generations, so that the younger generations could go out and forage or do a little bit of like localized farming or hunt. Mostly we were eating forage food. We weren't eating a lot of huge game. Again, another way that we like to think about our prehistory from a really masculine point of view. And what's fascinating is that there's a a UCLA Hungarian anthropologist who is no longer with us, Maria Gumbutas. And she had found all these birthing, these goddess statues, and sort of was one of the people who put forward this idea that the feminine form was worshipped, venerated. And obviously, as you know, there's pantheons of female goddesses. And even the story of Adam Eve is based on the Sumerian myth about the goddess in the garden. And I think that people very much equated creativity and the creation of new life and the planet with women. We create life. So there were all these goddess sculptures, which definitely inflamed the imaginations of a lot of feminist writers. And then you get this, it was a matriarchy, it was a matriarchy. There was never a dominance-based female hierarchical culture, just to be clear. And nor do we want that. We don't want these dominance-based oppressive schemes, period. They don't really know what all of these goddesses are. They didn't find the equivalent of men. They could have been birthing talismans. They could have been dolls. They could have been religious. They just don't know. But there's definitely an existence of these. And Maria had this theory where Judeo-Christianity emerged in sort of this fertile valley. She made the assertion that this was an affiliative partnership style society and that Kurgans from the Russian steppes, they're called Kurgans because of the burial mounds that they would leave behind, descended and that they were predominantly male and they raped, pillaged, enslaved, and sort of sowed the first seeds of patriarchy, which was the subjugation of women and children. That was the creation of this idea of enslavement and that you could create this hierarchy. At a certain point, people started to deprecate her academic work. She was destroyed by other anthropologists as being delusional and that she was captivated because of her own personal history with this narrative, which was absolutely not true. She wasn't alive when a lot of the destruction of her legacy was underway. And guess what? She was largely right. So new DNA evidence suggests that exactly what she suggested happened, that there was invading DNA from the north. And Joseph Campbell writes about Semitic tribes emerging out of the Syrian desert, potentially at around the same time, who would have had a very different feeling of nature. Um, But Gambutas was right. The genetic evidence is there that this northern tribes completely took over, that the DNA of the existing men essentially disappears and is replaced. But that was the beginning. And that was sort of not only, it was like the devaluation of the feminine. This is when we start to see classes of women, women who are respectable, women who are not. Hammurabi's code, which is incredibly sexist and misogynistic about, you know, this is when women became property. And 
this isn't our history for most of our existence on this planet. This is kind of new. And yet we perceive it as like, of course, this is how things are. Men have always been dominant. They've always been aggressive. They've always been violent. Not true. I find it so sad, actually, because I grew up super Christian, like went to church every Sunday. And I actually find it devastating when you look at how oppressive these religious texts are towards women, especially, and you talk about this in your book, the Adam and Eve story. Yeah, I only really reconsidered this story about two months ago when a friend of mine said, think about the millions and millions of people that have been educated that women were the birth of sin because of the Adam and Eve story. And this is what's also wild about that. And again, I don't want to get too far over because I'm not a theologian, but one, there are two Genesis stories. The first one is very different. It's just talking about how everything was good. Everything was good. Everything was good. And we are very attached to the second one, which is more negative. But then the story of Adam and Eve, this idea of original sin isn't in the Bible. And I think it was Augustine. I think it was in sort of confession. In Augustine's life and work, he's the one who I write about him a, a fair amount in lust because he writes as though he has a sex addiction problem. He's the one who really made, this is again, fourth century, really inserted the idea of sex as a sin and sex as original sin. He's the one who said that it was essentially lust or sexual appetite that evicted Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Instead of just this idea, really, I think when you look at it from a more of a mythological point of view, it was eating from the tree of knowledge and choosing to become mortal and human, really, and moving into life. Not, It didn't have anything to do with sex, but that's where that came from. So what's also interesting, and Jesus, who I actually have come to love just by this work, was a feminist. And mm-hmm. at no point is he deprecating women or expressing any misogyny. He was hanging out with lepers and prostitutes and all the untoward elements of society and suggesting that they are as equal as anyone else on the planet. So he was sort of an anti-snob. A lot of it is just the way that it has been translated and interpreted and used to support oppressive ideas and oppressive regimes. It's not actually in the text. It's a game of cultural telephone and it's off. It's wrong. And then this leads into the witch hunt. Yeah. And I wanted to read out something that you wrote here, which gave me shivers. I have to wonder if the emotional sentiment of this being the witch trials is one of the reasons women today can be wary of each other and are often willing to watch each other get cut down. The trauma is in our DNA. I suspect this fear is one of the reasons we self-restrict. Obviously, there's just so many things in this quote because to think that we've actually inherited, it's actually this generational trauma that we are wary of women. I would love for you to kind of educate us more yeah. on the witch trials and along with innocent lives lost, what else did we lose in this movement? I mean, it's actually a stunning event. And the witch trials in Europe went on for centuries and they were largely secular, but the playbook was the Inquisition when they had rooted out heretics and 
and murdered them in similar ways, burning them at the stake, et cetera. This is Catholicism's march across the continent. And the witch trials followed that playbook, even though they were largely persecuted, not by the church officially, but by courts. And it's stunning and strange, this gender side, this idea that it was primarily women. Some men were also persecuted, killed, and imprisoned. But this hunt for witches, primarily the first to go were older women, crones, typically village healers, the women who initiated younger girls into what it is to be a woman into the culture. These are women who might be widows and might own have the property and have no interest in remarrying. But the witch hunts were a way of accumulating vast amounts of wealth on the part of government because property was seized and controlled. So these are a lot of the women who were who first went were the ones that were the hardest to control and actually had the most to lose. And we don't have the full records. They're still trying to understand the full. And again, there were some feminist writers who you'll see figures like a million, 20 million. They think it's probably 80,000 to 100,000 people, which is a huge amount of people. Some villages were left with no women. And what's most pernicious about it is that, you know, someone would miscarry and it would be blamed on the village midwife. She would be accused of casting a spell or a hex or murdering the baby. I mean, it was wild when we look at it from a modern lens. But this spread across Europe and women were called on each other to denounce each other Sisters, friends, daughters, mothers were pushed to turn each other over for self-preservation. And you see, I, I write about the word gossip, which the etymology of gossip is godparent. It never had the negative connotations that it has now, but it was applied to women who would gather and talk. So all of that sort of convening, doing life together became dangerous. And you know, in the United States with the Salem witch trials, I think it was 25, 30 people who died. And it still has our collective imaginations in a grip. In Europe, it went on for so much longer. And there were so many more victims, not to mention the people who were involved in victimizing the people who ultimately were killed. So we think about what's lost. We think about the healing traditions that were lost. I think it's why there's When you think about wellness today, much of it comes out of the East, much of it comes out of South America, Africa. Our healing tradition, our Western patriarchal healing traditions are largely gone. You know, indigenous culture has healing traditions, I think, because we burned all of our wise women. We murdered our healers and all that knowledge evaporated. It's interesting to think about where we would be even medically, if we had preserved that lineage. It's fascinating. And I think as we think about familial trauma, we think about intergenerational cultural trauma, we're starting to understand the impacts of racism, slavery. We're still working this out of our collective history. The the witchcraft, like we haven't touched that stuff yet, that fear of women and the deep-rooted misogyny in our culture. And I think in, in this book really felt like an invitation 
for us to refrain from chopping down the woman next to us you know it really <laughs> that's what I thought was so beautiful about it, and that's what I just hope so many people read this book because I think when you understand that it's a zero-sum gain chopping down your fellow woman and if anything it's in service of the patriarchy and you start to understand the historical significance of it it gives you so much more context and reason to actually change our behaviors that let's be honest probably are quite habitual at this point. Totally habitual. Totally unconscious. It's part of our system. And it's going to take a huge amount of consciousness to change that. In your own life, how have you changed these patterns? Honestly, I mean, writing this book was a, a massive act of therapy, as you can imagine, because there's a little bit of memoir in the book, primarily to just connect myself for readers to the excavation of these sins. So I wanted to use myself as a proxy and as someone working on this myself, that all of this cultural programming is alive in me too. I will say, and this is what makes me really excited about the book and early feedback, is the greatest dream for me is that this book spreads women to women in book groups, women's groups, and gives us a framework even if people haven't read the book, I hope they read the book, but even if they just use the framework of evaluating their lives in the context of these sins, how do I police myself about food? Mm. What am I, how do I talk to myself about my body? In what ways am I repressing myself sexually? How am I overworking and trying to prove to the world that I'm enough and that I'm doing enough in all spheres of my life? As people start to sort of think about these sins, gluttony, lust, sloth, you know, what is my relationship to money? What would enough feel like? Why do I have so much shame for wanting more, et cetera, that we can sort of start reverse engineering ourselves and then giving each other permission, even to sort of say, I'm really happy for you and congrats on that award. And it's like making me feel like I'm not doing enough. I'm going to use this as an inspiration to try to get that award next year. Whatever it is, that people will have a reference point of like, oh, I know what I'm doing here and I'm going to retool myself and you can help me. We can model for each other what this looks like to actually start to talk about this in our lives and to distill what's me versus the me that I think I'm supposed to be. And that we can use each other in the way that I think we were designed to do. Women have always done life together, maybe not as much in recent centuries or millennia, to help each other get bigger. And that's what's so exciting, honestly, Poppy. You know, I write about this in Sloth. Across the globe, women have been outperforming men in school for a century. We're biologically kind of amazing. We are durable. Obviously, we can have children, but we also live longer. And all the women I know are incredibly hardworking and caring. A lot of us have all of the qualities of the feminine and many of the qualities of the masculine. I think we tend to be more balanced. So I think if we can stop restricting ourselves and stop policing each other, I think as women get on side with each other, the next iteration of society will look different. And partly it's because women are amazing and watch us begin to realize it and express it fully in the world. 
One tip that I really took from your book, and I'd love to cover this, it's in The Deadly Sin of Anger. And mm. I'd love to kind of hear you talk about why anger is so polarizing. We're terrified of an angry woman. And mm -hmm. you suggest some really helpful techniques that you learned from nonverbal communication. Yeah. I'd love to hear you talk about that and trying to prioritize the language around this is what I need yes. rather than I'm angry because. So it's a great time to have a conversation about anger because we're seeing so many books about boundaries and this, this wider discussion about boundaries come out. So as you mentioned, culturally, we do not like angry women. Unless women are angry on behalf of someone else, Mary Beard, one of your treasures over in the UK, writes about this. Like It goes back to Telemachus telling his mother, Penelope, to shut up. It's this like quieting of anger or unrest in women that's been going on since the creation of literature, right? And you see it as one of the hallmarks of feminism, in the US at least, that turns off younger generations. I don't want to be one of those angry women. And the fear of anger, one, I think is angry women, typically it's righteous indignation. It is this energy of don't tread on me. This is wrong. This needs to be changed. And we need to redraw lines about what's acceptable. So I think it, it's terrifying to men for good reason. But the reason that we don't practice it and that we're so scared of it, one is that girls are trained away from conflict. Boys are taught that it's completely acceptable and very boyish to be physical in their aggression and to be verbal in their aggression. Whereas girls are conditioned to believe that girls don't do that. Girls don't push. They don't yell. You know, they use their words. And what we see, you know, I write about this at length is training away from conflict for girls where you see more alliance building. We have the same amount of aggression. We're human. But we, we redirect it into gossip, maligning, exclusion. This covert conflict and covert aggression is what girls are trained for. And it's very insidious because then we're missing a lot of the development of these muscles. And I'm not saying that boys should be beating each other up or any of us should be beating each other up. But kids need to be taught conflict. And they need to be taught how to express their needs without steamrolling the needs of other people. And that this is what it means to be alive, right? And certainly to be in relationship. And none of us are getting a good training in that. And so for women, as we age, there is this fear of anger and a fear of assertion of needs that you will lose your relationships. You'll be cast out from the group. Or your husband or partner might be like, oh, you have needs? Like, you're not just here to meet my needs? Like, I'm not interested in being in a relationship with someone who has needs. Like, this selfless woman is what we're conditioned to subscribe to, right? I don't have needs. I'm just here to serve everyone else's. And I think that anger turned inward for women is killing us. I think that... It has to be expressed both in our personal relationships to create more equity and also in society. I think what women want is beautiful, brave, and probably more inclined with what the community or collective needs. But yeah, we're not taught how to do it. And so Marshall Rosenberg, who he created nonviolent communication, he went into conflict zones and like really started to understand the way that he talks a lot about patriarchy and the language of patriarchy. But how to assert needs 
in a way where you're taking simultaneously taking responsibility for your feelings. So as you said, it's like, I am needing this, not an offloading or blaming of the other person for not meeting your needs. It's like what he is coaching in his book is how do you identify the need and assert it without making it the other person's responsibility to take care of your feelings in the same way that you're not responsible for taking care of anyone else's feelings either. And if we had a society where we could articulate what we need, it doesn't mean that all your needs will be met, but where we say, it's my responsibility to get this need met, I'm hoping you can meet it. And if you can't, we'll figure it out. That's a major turn from our society, which is both anger turned inward and sort of this longing. I wrote about that scene in the breakup that Vince Vaughn, yeah. Jennifer Aniston, where she's yeah. like, I want you to want to do the dishes. So there's so much law lo- in me, certainly longing of just like, can't you just know my needs and anticipate them and meet them? And no, we have to actually identify them and say it. And the, the last point I'd love to talk to you about is just the masculinization of wellness. Mm. And uh, this has had me thinking for days and you kind of, and you, there's a couple of things you mentioned in your book about this as well, about, you know, can't we just be open to the magical, the woo-woo? Like I've always been brought up in many ways. My mother's in some sorts of ways, she's a healer. So I've always been brought up to believe in magic and then deeply ashamed of the idea that we could have these slightly less evidenced ideas. Mm-hmm. And you just spoke about it so well. Like we've just, wellness has moved into this biohacking world of just metrics. Yes. It drives me crazy. And yet originally wellness, I think, which is certainly attached to women's intuition and our ability to sort of sense ourselves and sense ourselves in relationship to other people. I think that a lot of women are like, yes, I feel energy. I think partly because we've needed to for our survival, right? Like we can read a situation, I think, with a lot more acuity than men. And I don't think it's any mystery why most medium psychics, intuitives are women. I think that we have in our bodies the ability to sense a lot of information that's unspoken. And the modern wellness industry really emerged for women by women as an antidote to the fact that we were largely often misdiagnosed or just sort of dismissed by tradition. You know, and my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, I love medicine, but that you know, you hear this over and over that women were like, oh yeah, my autoimmune diagnosis was missed for 10 years. I was told that it was only entirely in my head. You know, all these tropes are real. And wellness was sort of this beautiful corner of healing and looking outside of not dismissing traditional avenues, but wanting to sort of have other experiences or get in touch with the magic of the universe, I think. And then there's been this sort of co-development, which seems like it emerged much more recently and is much faster of the masculine within wellness, which is all about biohacking, quote unquote, longevity, tracking everything, analyzing everything, even though most of us are not scientists, okay? There's like a real chasm between Getting a lot of data on yourself and being able to interpret it accurately, whole different thing where I'm like, leave it to doctors, guys. Like, we don't need to be like 
looking at our HRV every day and our glucose, you know, but this masculinization, this fear of death, this optimization of every single metric to me is morbid. I feel like it is this complete fear of losing control, complete fear of uncertainty and an unwillingness really to live and to be here and to eat the donut. But yeah, it it drives me nuts to just see something that I think was really beautiful and soulful be completely co-opted by this broy patriarchal biohacky point of view and then commoditized. Everything is a commodity, you know? It's like how can you take these things that are either healer to person or these experiences or should be free and then turn them into you know, another app that you need or another like piece of tech or another program. It just drives me a little nuts because at, at its heart, it's supposed to be really, I think, about wholeness and getting in touch with yourself and not about an endless list of things to do. Well, I deeply appreciate your voice in this world. And I'm going to be thinking about this for days on end. I will put a link to your book in the show notes, but where is the best place for people to find you? And is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? Yeah, no, I hope people enjoy the book. I hope they share it with their friends. I'm at Elise Lunen on Instagram, where you'll find links to the book and my podcast, Pulling the Thread. But thank you, Poppy. This was wonderful. And thanks for reading the book so closely. I haven't really been able to talk about the book with very many people, so it's really meaningful. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker. A skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions, and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you, so do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.